Hey, everybody, how's it going? Thank you again for tuning in. And thank you for the continued support. I really appreciate it. It's so fun to watch this grow. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing it. My guest today is the founder of Valiandero Digital Assets, a quant-based data-driven cryptocurrency hedge fund in Pittsburgh, PA. He is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University, a contributor to Forbes magazine, and he's also a top-level Muay Thai coach at Stout Academy. He has a podcast called Crypto and Muay Thai, and we talk a little bit about both of those things. So if you're into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, or maybe you're trying to understand what it is, he does a great job of breaking it down into terms that I think almost everybody could understand. And we talked about some theoretical possibilities of what cryptocurrency and digital assets mean to the future of our country and, and really to human civilization in general. He's a super smart guy, and I really appreciated the conversation. His name is Christopher Brookins. Enjoy the episode. But before we do, a quick shout out to our sponsor for every podcast, Action. So I need you guys to stop and ask yourself a really simple question. Do I enjoy great tasting coffee? If the answer to that question is yes, then you need to go to drinkaction.com, and that's action with a K, and you need to check out all of their specialty roast coffees, which are sourced from a volcano in Guatemala, and small batch roasted in Austin, Texas, when you place your order. It's really simple, folks. 20% off for subscriptions, so they make your life easy and they reward you for it, and you get to drink the best tasting coffee that personally I've ever tried and that I think you'll ever try. And it's a money back guarantee. They're putting their stuff up against all the best. So if you're a Black Rifle fan or a Death Wish fan, they want to hear from you. They want to know what you think. Try out action, use code word curious. And while you're there, grab a bottle of active. It's turmeric and hemp. It's great for inflammation relief. It's great as an antioxidant. If you're not familiar with the power of CBD and the power of curcumin, go look it up. Go to drinkaction.com, use code word curious, and enjoy the episode today. So first off, there's tons of similarities within our story, um, which is kind of cool to, uh, to see. And I try to keep it um, try to keep it like uh, buttoned down a little bit because these are topics and, and things that uh, I get excited and can just sort of just go on and on sure. um, about uh, from those particular elements. But uh, to bring it back to kind of like what this sphere is, cryptocurrency. So the, the first core thing is the original cryptocurrency out there. And I'm sure everyone here that, you know, is listening to it that has interest uh, is Bitcoin. And essentially what Bitcoin leveraged is a technology that had been around for a few years prior, but no one had been able to integrate and come up with a system design quite like it before, essentially solving um, the non-sovereign immutable um, you know, store of record. So being able to store value, but also being a medium exchange, it, you know, as well. So 
being able to solve all of those in one simplistic way was the first time that that's ever been able to do in recorded history, um, to my knowledge, and principally leveraging this public, verifiable, immutable, meaning you can't tamper with it, uh, database, which is known as the blockchain. So what you'll probably hear a lot whenever people are talking in buzzwords, blockchain this, blockchain that, that's what they're referring to is this public database um, that is immutable and it's just a verifiable record that just goes on and on and on. So Bitcoin, it has a huge, um, you know, blockchain database. What uh, the, the difference in, so there's a couple ways that this space kind of gets broken down into there's cryptocurrencies which originally were meant to be uh fill a use case that i sort of talked about where we're seeing a lot in this particular year um where governments are just sort of um doing whatever they want to do and printing money however they want to print money and allocate it wherever they want to which is fine and dandy especially whenever you're trying to stave off uh, a lot of economic carnage uh, that could result from a pandemic or has been happening from a pandemic but there's always long-term ramifications and the long-term ramifications are this growing wealth divide um, between the haves and have-nots there's several ways that that's sort of tied into and we can double click in it um, if you want to but the more uh clear and present is the diminished nature of your purchasing power. So if I've got uh, $100 in the bank, 10 years from now, I guarantee you that $100 is not going to be able to buy the same amount of goods or services that it is today. And that was the principal thing that Bitcoin was, was trying to solve, where it's not under the domain of any local government of the US, of, of the Eurozone or anything like that. And it is a fixed supply asset. There will only be ever 21 million uh, Bitcoin that are created and minted. So it is ultimately a disinflationary or a deflationary asset. So in theory, as demand picks up, supply will stay fixed. So price should be able um, to go up. That is the principal like genesis of cryptocurrency and this blockchain sphere. It's taken a bunch of different subsectors uh, to solve a bunch of different business problems. Um, and it falls under this umbrella that is now known as digital assets. So I'll pause there because we can start to go down a couple different rabbit holes, but hopefully that's a good enough kind of overview of the genesis, but also um, sort of like the a very high level evolution of the space as well. That was dead on the money and that was very helpful. I mean, even I have a little bit of understanding of, of it. I have a little bit of money invested in it and you, you actually clarified some things that I was probably not as clear as I thought that I was. So I appreciate it. There's also there's a lot of different cryptocurrencies, correct, that are not necessarily leveraged or aimed at trying to be a replacement of the dollar, but more uh, a tool for financial institutions to move money without large fees and time. Am I thinking of that correct? No, 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 100%. So you're kind of touching into what I was talking about with the different subsectors. Okay. So there's like store of value cryptocurrencies. Um, and, I, and I do air quotes because there's a lot of... Uh, because the database, the blockchain is public, everyone can verify it, it's encrypted, but there's a lot of technology companies out there that have been able to do essentially, um, not lookalike modeling, but like tracing to say like, this wallet has been known to correspond with this institution. So there's actually not too much that's like, can be hidden um, 
you know, via using cryptocurrencies, which is always the sort of like nasty, dirty word. Um, so there's the one segment where it's store of value, where Bitcoin firmly leads in that, and it's gradually chipping away at legacy um, assets like gold and silver as we're speaking. Um, there's other ones that are trying to solve other business needs. So what you talked about is essentially creating a network of payments, which Bitcoin can do. So if you were sitting in Thailand right now and you had your Bitcoin wallet, I could send you, you know, a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin and it, you know, minus a very nominal fee and it would arrive relatively, you know, expeditiously. So maybe within three to five minutes, depending on how much traffic is currently on the network. That is something that cannot be done um, by, you know, within that frame of time and the small amount that can happen in banks around the world. So anyone that's tried to send money international will know that pain very clearly. One of the things that has come to the forefront this year is, are stable coins. So uh, digital assets that are backed one-to-one -one, um, by some native fiat currency. So the US dollar, for example, which majority of them are. And that is built on another asset called Ethereum. And all Ethereum is, is essentially it's a virtual machine platform connecting everything in. So we've got a bunch of decentralized computers and individuals, and it's creating a platform for them to be able to uh, communicate and collaborate, uh, specifically through smart contracts. And what that means is being able to strip out using coding, programmatic coding, to be able to strip out like human layers and in, in interface. So like middle, like middlemen or, or middle individuals um, nowadays and do that in a variety of ways. And decentralized finance is one of those principal use cases to where a stable coin can issue their money backed by US dollars held somewhere, verifiable, fully auditable on the Ethereum network. And then I can do the same exact thing, send that to you anywhere in the world. Uh, you get it rather immediately uh, for a very, very limited price. So that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is being built in on this alternative uh, blockchain system, this ecosystem, Ethereum. And then there's a bunch of different subsectors that are trying to solve different things. So there's lending, um, you know, there's derivatives, there's exchanges, there's uh, different yielding type mechanisms. I, I can go on and on. There's decentralized storage. So there's all these things that are getting built, um, not just on Ethereum, but uh, competitive uh, blockchains as well that are looking to sort of strip away market share from Ethereum um, that are looking to solve all these different use cases. But what you're sort of alluding to is one of the more prominent one um, that's happened this year, specifically because of what happened uh, whenever COVID started to roll in. The dollar went up, everyone else's currencies went down. And if you're living in an Argentina or a Venezuela or even in Asia or Turkey or anything like that, and your purchasing power is going down 40% versus the US dollar, but before that was really difficult to get access to, you really couldn't do anything. But now if you've got a smartphone and an internet connection, you can get access to a stable coin that has the same purchasing power of the US dollar. And if you don't believe in that, that can be your on-ramp to Bitcoin. If you believe longer term, Bitcoin is gonna be a superior um, store of value, which in 2020, you'd be proven correct right now. I believe Bitcoin's up like between 40 and 50% um, for the year, whereas I believe the dollar is maybe at par from, from where it started, maybe a little bit down. So a lot of benefit, 
for a global type of, of economy in a lot of ways to give, you know, people that purchasing power to kind of put a, a different spin on this with everything that's happening in the world right now and the lack of understanding, um, I'm going to say immaturity in, 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 in just in this context, right? That there's a lot of immaturity in the Bitcoin market where the, the layperson doesn't know really how it works. Even like what you just walked through, I mean, there's a lot to unpackage there, right? For just yeah. the normal person who's used to dollars and cents that was taught that in school. And um, is there potential benefit for a, a large nation possibly to, you know, or, or any individuals in the world to push? I mean, globalization is a, is a big topic, right? And there's, there's a, a contentious battle, especially in America, about whether or not that's a good thing. And one of the benefits would be, you know, digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And there's definitely nations that as a whole understand this and are probably way more invested and would benefit by a big shakeup where everything all of a sudden goes digital, but where they are positioned way ahead of everybody else for that transition to happen. Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it just, yeah. am I maybe a little crazy in that or no, no, no. Are, are I mean, kind of avenues where, you know, I don't want to say China, but you know, a dude, country like China could heavily invest and then disrupt the market, force everybody else to go digital, to drive up the prices. And they walk away making trillions and trillions of dollars at the end of the day. So, so you're, you're 100% like everything that you said in like your prior preamble, just replace that with China because that's exactly like what they're what they're I was doing. Trying You're, to be like somewhat sensitive, but no, at the end no, of the day, I it mean, is what it is, right? Yeah, I mean, we're uh, I'm not gonna we're not gonna trash China. We're just you know calling it what it is with with straight facts. And there's some smaller um, Caribbean nations that have kind of taken the forefront um, of this particular initiative to digitize their local fiat assets and you know uh, to be able to create that sort of. Um, digital network that we were kind of describing, but within the confines of their own sovereignty. Um, so, so yeah, but the principal one is China that you're talking about, and they are way ahead of the U.S. in terms of understanding, appreciating, and valuing um, the implications of the digital revolution, which they're already far ahead just in sort of like native assets. Anyone that's been to China before, you know, we'll talk about the simplicity and all-inclusiveness of like WeChat and Alipay, how they can essentially run their lives from just one single app. So they're already well ahead of us in, in that terms. But uh, from issuing, understanding, um, and getting ready to implement digital, their own native digital currency, um, they're not far away from it as well. And I, and it's not like, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Like it's well documented. I just don't know. They're gonna start piloting here shortly. I don't know the specific date or um, like the specific reference, but it, it's going to be happening in the not too distant future. Um, and they'll be able to take advantage of that. If that will mean direct, um, attribution or sort of chipping away at the US dollars market share in going to China, I don't know if it'll be an apples to apples comparison to where they'll just get like a trillion dollar windfall, but their economy will be better suited um, to live in this new world that is fully digitized, uh, specifically from a payments front, from a monetary perspective, and that will pull all the other nations um, that have 
vested interests to lose, like the Eurozone, like the US, um, along that particular path as well, because there's tons of synergies um, that they'll be able to take advantage of that the US will be forced to sort of go along. There's two flip sides or two caveats, I should say. So one, eventually the biggest thing that's going to hurt the U.S. is losing their um, world reserve status, which they're well on their way to be able to, they're doing that right now um, because of everything that they're doing. So we essentially do anything that we want to with impunity, you know, and no one has anything to say about it. Print as much money as we want to. Uh, you know, keep interest rates low, run our, continue to run our debt super high because we issue it in our own currency. So we can continue to issue it, which is just monetizing um, the, the national debt. And eventually there's long-term ramifications. And you're seeing that right now where the Eastern block, the Eastern hemisphere is taking these small incremental steps to be able to um, get off the dollar standard and get to some kind of basket or go back to gold or even go with Bitcoin as, uh, you know, as a combination as well to hard money um, behind it. That will ultimately happen and the U.S. will lose there. Where China is exposed as well is in this new revolution, um, uh, people that are maybe wanting to shield their wealth or their assets from the government have the best on-ramp that they've ever had ever. So, I've got nothing but anecdotal story from one individual that talked to like a handful of other people, but one of the principal or the largest, the largest stable coins um, that we were talking about prior is called Tether, T-E-T-H-E-R. And um, that has been a very big mechanism that a lot of Chinese wealthy individuals or families have used to usher wealth outside of the country around some of the, you know, constraints that the local government uh, has placed on them. Bitcoin and Tether are the biggest way that they do it. And if you can have a bulk of your population that, you know, has their phone and chooses to leave and can take their wealth with them, that's incredibly powerful. And I don't know how that shakes out because China doesn't seem like the type of nation that would just allow that. But whereas gold, you got to, you know, Go bear, unbury it and put it in your backpack and charter a boat and get armed guards. Bitcoin or, you know, a stable coin is right there on your phone and you can just leave off into the night. So there's two interesting dynamics that are kind of unfolding um, right now. But ultimately, I think it's going to be better for the world um, in general. And another reason why uh, China has been at the forefront of this is if everything's digitized, they can track your, your payments. So again, this isn't, this isn't verified, but it's easy to do. If everything's digitized, it's on a local blockchain record. The government can see where all the payments are being made and where the payments are going. So I think another reason um, that they're moving so quickly uh, is to have tracks to be able to um, circumvent the existing circumvention of people trying to, uh, you know, park some of their assets or some of their wealth outside of the, uh, the nation. It's a conundrum. It, I mean, it just is, it, it is what it is. It's, it's exciting. So there's always these, um, there's always these growing pains. I, I truly believe that this technology is revolutionary um, because it's going to 
it's going to change how the existing world order kind of is. And it's going to do it from finance first. And then it's going to gradually evolve into more and more things that kind of like touch your life with Facebook and Insta, you know, and all these social media platforms being another one that will ultimately be uh, severely affected by it because under this particular model, um, the individual is the sovereign nation and then they can tell you, okay, I'll allow you to use my data to make money off my data, but you got to give me a cut of that and like so on and so forth. So that kind of goes down the path of the additional like subsectors that are being built within this space of digital assets. But ultimately, yeah, it, it, it's always going to be a little messy. There's going to be vested interests that speak against it. Um, but that's just the, the innovative path that that's kind of how it is creative destruction as a, uh, a famous economist, Schumpeter, uh, described it. Yeah, no, hey, chaos breeds opportunity, right? And not to say that it's going to be chaos, but um, it, there's certainly opportunities if you look at it the right way. Um, you, so you were talking about a traceable record, and I wanted to ask you, um, and, and with a, a non-biased, I'm trying to just – I want to understand this because there's a lot of people that are, may listen to this um, who are curious. So I, I grew up in Northwestern PA mm -hmm. um, and there are two brothers who are from my hometown who had a, a hedge fund that was leveraging data. Um, I'm not sure if it was in a similar way that you are, but leveraging predictive data scraping, you know, I, from what I understood, they're scraping news stories and understanding that regardless of news, whether it's true or not, news stories impact markets and they could predict trading patterns um, and were, were kind of, uh, you know, touting really large returns. Um, SEC got involved. A lot of people in my small hometown have been affected by potential fraud, potential scheme to take their money. I think there's a lot of back and forth. I, I have no opinion because I don't I don't know anything other than what's been in the newspapers and that I've read online, but I'm definitely curious because as you know, we sit here and have this conversation, digital assets are something that are obviously going to be extremely valuable, especially as the dollar. I mean, let's, it's probably going to collapse at some point in time when at least that's my thought when all these other nations stop propping it up because we don't have the ability to hold it up on our own. And so when things start to fall, it's going to fall quickly. Um, and so I want to be invested. And I think I want a lot of my family and friends to be invested. But there's a lot of fear, at least in this small pocket, and I'm sure it happens all over the place, that you're sending somebody money, and then they're going to sift it off into multiple different accounts, and you're never going to get it back. No, for sure. Uh, so there, there's two pieces that you're like kind of talking about. The one is, is simple we're talking from like the hedge fund perspective where um, anytime you invest in a hedge fund like myself or, you know, any traditional one, there's, there's a layer of due diligence that has to go because you are, um, you know, making a wire transfer to a bank that, um, you know, is not within your control. So there needs to be due diligence. So there's always going to be a little bit of, of worry, but that's what all the papers are in place for that you do in due diligence to say that like, Hey, this is the bank, here's the custodian, you know, where I, you're not sending it to Chris's personal bank account and all these things um, that de-risk. Should, should be yeah, red flags along the way. For sure, for sure. To like de-risk and let people know like, hey, 
this is an above board operation. All you need to evaluate is whether or not you believe this manager's approach um, is for you in terms of a risk reward, but ultimately you think, um, you know, we'll make you money uh, over the long term. So that that's the first you know, piece of the coin that you're kind of talking about. The second one is, yeah, there's a lot of, so digital assets, what's great about them. And let me preface by saying majority of digital assets are bare assets, meaning the person that has possession of it owns it. And it's like, it's there, it's there to be had. So, you know, if I give you, if I send you a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin and maybe we had an argument and I say, you know, well, that was a gift. I want the gift back. I've got zero recourse on that outside of like looking for you on the street, you know, like it, it, it's, it's not, it's not anything to where, you know, if I sent, if I gave you a check and then we had an argument, I could go to my bank and say, Hey, you know, put a cease and desist on that, on that check. There's zero recourse on it. So I think that's the thing uh, that trips people up, but also that fact coupled with, there's been a lot of hacks in this space. So people buy on exchanges, and exchanges are essentially just a big sign for you know hackers saying come and try to uh, break in and, and get away with with some of the money. The infrastructure, the exchanges have gotten a lot more sophisticated. Um, exchanges just being a central place that you would go to a marketplace to be able to buy Bitcoin or, or whatever you're looking for. And hacks happen far fewer. Um, than they did prior. But there's also a multitude of ways that take it off hot wallets, meaning connected to the internet, and bring it into cold storage. So essentially a hardware wallet to where there's no place for someone on the internet via hacking to get access to it. Someone would have to gain physical access to that particular wallet and then know your passwords to be able to take the money out, to put it in, you know, back on the internet hot wallet and then transfer it to their own wallet as well. So the infrastructure has gotten a lot more sophisticated and now those services are offered um, via exchanges now. But also a lot of the diehard people that have been in this space for a while, they'll, um, they'll propose and, and insist sometimes that you do it yourself. So you have proof of keys, meaning, you know, this is my asset because I have the keys um, or the passwords is what they're, is what they're saying. Um, and, I, and I own it and I can choose to take it with me wherever I want to. But if it's like, you know, both of our parents or even our grandparents and they want to buy Bitcoin because they're worried about the dollar, I would say, it's like exchanges are probably the easiest bet because it's an infrastructure that they kind of already understand given they probably have investments in mutual funds. They've got a bank account, you know, maybe like a Charles Schwab account, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And it's the same exact principle. The only difference is you're now buying Bitcoin and you tell them, Hey, I would like this custodied in your cold storage. You'll pay a fee for it, but it's a peace of mind that, you don't wake up one day and say, oh shit, where'd I put that password at? You know, uh, I guess our retirement's gone, honey. I, I don't, I, I, I misplaced the password. So there's those little nuances um, that uh, go with this space, which are great, which is why the space was built um, to give people the sovereignty to do as they please and what they wanna do and be, um, you know, international. Uh, but, not everybody wants that. So that's kind of been something that the space has been trying to address to 
um, stand out to a, a growing mass of individuals, not just like the diehards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, geez, how, what was the uptick in people diving into Robinhood? when this whole pandemic happened. I mean, Oh man, the numbers were, the numbers were insane. I actually, so I have a newsletter and I actually sent out, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a website that tracks the trading. So again, like readily available information, nothing's not public, kind of like what you're talking about with, um, that fund that you, you know, knew from, from your local hometown, Mm -hmm. um, is being able to track like the purchases that were on Robinhood and specifically for some of the riskiest things that you could have been getting into at that particular time. This was back in like March or April and it was all airlines, all cruise lines. So if you looked at the price of, you know, uh, an airliner or carnival cruises, it was going like that. But then you looked at the amount of new buyers, it was going like that just straight up. So it's crazy. It's a, it's a gambling, it's a gambling casino in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I think that infrastructure, if people get that, then they'll get what's in um, digital assets. But there's, there's the difference between the speculator that thinks they're going to make retirement money like yesterday mm-hmm. versus, you know, the individual that sees the long-term benefits of this and looks at it more from, uh, a long-term investing uh, perspective, which the makeup in this space is probably skewed towards speculator. Um, yeah. Just to be honest. Yeah. Do This is a little off, off of the road, but do they, I mean, are they looking to teach this in schools? I mean, think about it, right? It's like we're, we're on the precipice of a, a massive shift in the foundation of our economy. And I was like brought up in grade school, you know, albeit 20 years ago, 13, well, fuck, 25 years ago, um, getting old, but you're, you're learning about money in a, in a much different way. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around how, like, how does that translate over to young kids? And, and maybe it doesn't seem like it's something you would think about, but I mean, that would kind of be really important, right? Yeah, for sure. So uh, there's, there's way smarter, there, there's way smarter people and way more dedicated people like on, on this, like trying to fight this particular fight. Um, one of them, his name's Tyrone Ross. Uh, he's the CEO of a company called on ramp invest, but he's one of like the go-to financial advisors within this space, but he's been like standing and shouting at rooftops for a lot of time, uh, a long time, principally about that. Like there needs to be financial literacy at a very young age in schools and principally being able to introduce this new burgeoning asset class, um, to young people and principally, uh, communities of color that typically historically have been left out of sort of like paradigm shifting movement. So I look at this, at, this has the potential to be a peaceful wealth trans, um, redistribution, like a peaceful wealth redistribution, because you've got all the old guard, um, sort of fighting there, the gold bugs, the silver people, the stocks and bonds people. I think ultimately, everything is going to flow over in some frame or fashion to, you know, a digital, uh, a digital avenue, whether that's blockchain, um, or in-house blockchains or, or anything like that. But we're looking at, I firmly believe, uh, one of the greatest potentially peaceful wealth redistributions historically. So financial literacy is important principally for some of these communities that have historically been left out within this country and around the world. 
But to your point, no, I, I don't, I haven't heard of any like dedicated efforts um, on financial literacy or financial literacy uh, around this particular um, topic, just whether it's blockchain or, or digital asset or like store of value type assets like Bitcoin and just giving them a, just a gentle history lesson. Like there's tons of lessons to point to and why what's happening right now um, isn't a good thing because one of the elements of financial literacy is living within your means and not so not spending more than you take in. But now there's an additional caveat to that. Now you have to invest what you're taking in because if you take in a hundred bucks and your expenses are 40, you've got $60, but now you've got to invest, you know, 60, you know, those 60 bucks or 50 bucks because that $60 that you have is only going to be worth $40 in actual purchasing power five years down the line. So it can quickly kind of get convoluted. So I can see, and also from a person that was in finance that was in like traditional finance for a long time, that's how these guys make their money and they stay around is they keep it super convoluted and we use big words and all this other shit because then you look at me with bright eyes and you're like, I, I don't know what's Just, happening. It justifies the big fee that you're paying for all the services that the, 100%. Bank, the bank that you worked at. I, I banked there. My, my brother started there as a relationship manager mm -hmm. a number of years ago. He actually just left to pursue a more, you know, entrepreneurial style business. And, you know, that's the same as me. I, I love the, the technology world. I spent 12 years, I started at a startup. We were acquired by IBM. I spent a number of years there. I left, got back into the startup space, got acquired again, um, and then ended up at, a, at another small startup that was growing. And, you know, COVID hit, destroyed the retail space for a while. And that was a, a big, a big customer of ours. And this has been a, a, a real eye-opening experience for a lot of people. Um, but in your space, I'm sure a lot of opportunity. I mean, your, your fund, I'm sure, is working with a ton of people. You said having a lot of success, growing tremendously. I, I mean, not that this is a, a good thing for America, but it could be uh, ultimately in the long run. Yeah, it's just a rebalancing. So a lot of people are hurting. And I think, you know, individuals like you and myself are fortunate that we're largely immune to a lot of the hardships that are that's being passed around um, us, whether it be economic or, or, or health for, for that particular uh, matter. But um, anytime there's a paradigm shift, there's always going to be friction, you know, nothing good or nothing positive, not positive, but no meaningful change ever comes without some type of discomfort, some type of friction, whether that's in your personal life or, or just talking from an economic uh, high vantage point perspective. So I think we're in that right now, but ultimately you'll see a rebalancing towards um, ecosystems like myself, like that I'm involved in because yeah, it's been growing. There's been some like startups that are always gonna kind of go by the wayside because maybe they're mismanaging their money and thought the good times would last forever. But for the most part, um, it's been fairly normal and dare I say even bull times in, you know, in some of the markets, uh, you know, for some of the assets within the market. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think gradually you'll see more and more shifts towards some of these, uh, industries that are built for the future, mm -hmm. um, you know, like digital assets and blockchain. Yeah. 
Sounds like you have a stressful, stressful job at times, although you love it. I'm sure that's why you uh, like kicking the shit out of the bag as much as you do. I know you're, you're a big Muay Thai guy. Is that something that precedes the love of cryptocurrency and your work in crypto? Or is that something that's kind of more of a newfound journey? No, I've been doing Muay Thai since I, uh, since I was 20 years old. So 15 years now. Um, I used to fight a long time ago. I, I don't any longer, um, but I do just coach. So I coach down Stout, which obviously, you know, which is a local gym um, here in Pittsburgh, a local MMA gym. Um, but that precedes my, my love of digital assets and predictive analytics. I, I, love, I love crypto, I love blockchain. I love uh, predictive analytics, but, uh, but I wouldn't be who I am today without Muay Thai and I wouldn't be able to function probably in society as a normal human being without that uh, particular um, outlet. So, so yeah, I, I need Muay Thai. <laughs> yeah, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy how the, just the perspective enhancer at not just doing something, uh, doing difficult things in and of itself is so important um, just to reset, I think your parameters on life and, and give you a dose of reality. But when you're engaging in combat and you're pushing other people and there's a mutual, mutual goal, um, even in times like this where things are so divided, you, you can go to a gym where there's hundreds of people of every color, every belief, every, everything, you know, and, and that humbling effect of engaging in martial arts and combat and, it's, it's such a, a positive thing that I, I, I talk about it way too much. Um, but I actually, no, I don't, I don't say it enough probably, you know? No, you're, you're totally, you're totally right. And I, you definitely don't say it um, too much. I would shout it from the rooftops uh, as much as possible. So for me, I think it should be mandatory. And, and again, I have a very narrow purview uh, of the world, but I, I think it should be mandatory in schools in this country, you know, just like you would mandate uh, military service, you should have to have a basic level of martial arts ability, specifically, it, again, I'm biased, within combat arts that are going to push you both uh, mentally and physically and are applicable in the real world. So I started in Taekwondo, I started in all of these different martial arts they're great i enjoyed them but they're <laughs> if, if a wrestler or jiu-jitsu guy or a muay thai guy comes up to you in the street or a boxer for that matter the taekwondo guy's not gonna he's not gonna do shit so so there and and also there's a layer of uh cardiovascular uh like the grueling nature of some of those sports as well that pushes you mentally, but also puts you on that equalizing playing field that you're sort of talking about to where, you know, I could be there next to someone who has entirely different political viewpoints than myself, but we can have a common ground and a commonality. And afterwards, we're more likely to have an open perspective because we're both tired as shit. So whenever you strip away you, those anxieties, your mind's overreacting. It puts you in that sort of like calm Zen state, you know, quasi runner's high for you to be able to actually ingest and take in information. I mean, there's been, I've got tons of like crazy stories through, through Muay Thai and things like that to where there was 
former white supremacists that had left, uh, you know, that had left jail, but were in Muay Thai and, you know, still had the Nazi things on there. But it was totally fine because we were in that sphere. They were looking to change their lives. And I didn't, I didn't care. Like we were able to meet at that middle ground. And I was able to look past who they were for who that they were trying to be. And it was able, you know, and everything was fine. So I've got tons and tons of stories like that. And that can only happen um, through combat of some variety. So I'm sure military service veterans will be able to liken their particular experience. I never served, so I can't speak to that. But through combat art, specifically, if you're looking to actually test yourself um, in the ring or in the octagon, um, yeah, I think there's no better way and should be mandatory uh, in this country for everyone. No, man, I couldn't agree more. It's, it, it's, it re, I think we live in this society where our problems are so skewed. We, we, we don't have a real perspective. Most people don't have a real perspective of problems and struggles. And so like when you, when you put yourself voluntarily into that space and then you look around, you, you kind of, the first thing you notice about everybody else there is that they were willing to voluntarily put themselves through that same shit. So it's kind of like, we're good. I was looking back at an old fight. Um, it was the trilogy with Tito and Ken Shamrock and just the absolute hatred, the things that those guys were saying. And even like after the third fight, um, Ken tried initially coming over and talking to Tito and it, it got ugly, but then even they like went and hugged it out. And it's like, you can watch so many professional fights, whether it's the UFC or glory kickboxing or, you know, just however, I mean, dude, over in Thailand, I, I'm sure you've probably been, I'm, am I correct in that or? No, I've never, I've never been to Thailand. Haven't gotten there yet? No, no. And I'd love it, to get there. I haven't either, but it doesn't look like I'll be getting there anytime soon. Either. I know. Right. <laughs> um, but the, they, those people, they fight constantly. They're, they're fighting all the time. And the mutual level of respect, you don't ever see a whole lot of disrespect after a fight. Um, and I think it's, you know, mandatory to your point. I always preach to people that the first way that you can eliminate bullying is you've got to teach people how to fight and how to be confident in themselves because it's usually people who are very insecure who are causing problems because they're scared. Maybe they're bullied at home by their dad and they're a scared person. That's the only thing that they know how to do when they're in a situation. But if you understand how to fight and you, you actually know the principle, I'm not, you don't have to be like some American badass, but you can understand that. I think it goes a long way into eliminating what outward hatred or outward violence that you may put on other people who are weaker than you. Yeah, for sure. I think there needs to be, and then like piggybacking on, on what you're saying is there needs to be some shared suffering, you know, and suffering can manifest itself in a couple of different ways, but being there with other individuals, just like you said, or showing up voluntarily to suffer, um, it, it puts everything to perspective and it's a, it's a far even more even playing field for people to be able to understand, um, different perspectives or just be more open. But again, if I, you don't need to like everyone that you're there with, but there needs to be a respect and sort of what you're talking about in Thailand is everyone it's, it's, just, it's part of their culture. You know, it's part of their, uh, 
it's part of Buddhism. It's part of just how they carry themselves. And I'm sure not every person is going out afterwards, getting drinks and partying with one another, but there's always a mutual respect because Muay Thai is a fucking hard sport. It's dangerous as hell. So for anyone that walks through those ropes and is willing to put themselves out there like that, there's, there's a respect. So that's where that is. And, and it goes back to that mutual suffering, the same exact thing for wrestlers and jujitsu guys as well. A little bit different whenever, you know, knockouts and, and stuff like that come in, come into play. But like MMA guys, there's a mutual respect to be able to put yourself um, in harm's way. So I think that that's what's the missing piece whenever people don't have the opportunity to share in that learned, uh, that shared suffering. And then also, if you're around different people, you can't help but bump into a conversation yeah. uh, that that is different than your particular perspective, but you're more inclined to listen to it. Or maybe they say something, you're like, oh, shit, I never even known that. Like, I've heard tons of things where people are like, oh, I didn't even know that it was like that for you. It's like, okay, and well, this. <laughs> and that's the problem, right? It's that is, I don't have a problem disagreeing with people. I have a problem when I disagree with someone and they're not willing to have a conversation and understand why we disagree. And that is the problem with society right now. We have just shut ourselves off to hearing the other side because we just are so sure that we're right. And maybe it's because we think the times are so pivotal, so there's no room, but you're not gonna solve a problem unless you understand. And everybody's perspective is so different, right? It's like, I think we've lost a little of that you know, maybe your views are different because your reality is different. And people don't want to understand that. They, they want to have conversations as if realities are the same. And they're not, you know, you're, my reality here in, in, you know, North Hills of Pittsburgh is so much different than someone's reality in Baltimore. Now, I, I'm pretty outspoken about the shit that goes on in this country. And I think a lot of it's just garbage and people are hijacking things and fueling fires because at the end of the day they don't they don't want a change they they want a massive change they want to completely you know light this shit on fire and start all over and i think a lot of that's because their life suck but there's a middle ground that most of us live in which you know there is a lot of unhappiness and we need to make a lot of improvements but that nobody wants to openly have that dialogue um and until we can find a way to do it. I'm, I'm kind of like, doesn't matter what happens here. It's but fuck, man. I watched that thing last night. And it's, I'm just, I'm depressed. It's like, how, how, how is that? I mean, we're at a point in time where everybody feels like the other side is steps away from destroying civilization, but yet this is who we've got to solve the problems on either side. I mean, man yeah. yeah i didn't even so i uh i don't i don't watch a lot of those things because i know what it's gonna be and and i just it, it it's depressing so i did i honestly uh didn't follow a lot of politics and you know i voted i, I always vote try to get myself up to speed as much as i can to make you know a quasi informed decision but i don't put i don't place a lot of stock in politics because anyone that is willing to be a career politician trust me they're not out looking for your best interests. so i, I don't pretend to think that change is going to happen from top down change is going to happen from bottom down, whether it's societal levels or it's entrepreneurs saying, no, I'm not going to do it like this just because it's always been done that way. I'm going to do it this way because it's actually better for society, humanity, long-term or communities, whatever have you. But I've recently, 
had to really start paying attention um, because a lot of stuff that's going on, but also how um, essentially it's been very uh, openly divisive and it's been allowed to get more and more divisive um, on both sides. And I think one of the reasons or two of the reasons that you're sort of talking about is it's this whole social mediaization of the world. So you've got to shout loudly to have someone listen to you. But if you're, but if I'm shouting loud at you, you're going to be like, Whoa, well, what the fuck? Why are you shouting loud? I'm going to shout loud back at you. And it sort of devolves into this, essentially what you saw last night. I didn't see it, but what, but what I saw clips of um, on the debate, you know, the presidential debate. And then another thing is in this society, for some reason in the U S uh, particularly on a public forum, no one can admit that they were wrong and they've changed their opinion based upon new information. It's like, yeah, like I was wrong. I fucked up. Um, you know, after reviewing the data or new data that I've discovered, new analysis, um, so my opinion, my opinion's changed. Do you, do you think that, cause you, do you nail it, man? Do you think that that is a, an, it's probably a combination of both, but do you think it's an ego thing or do you think it's a looking at either side who, who their supporters are that maybe like, I don't think that my supporters can handle what I'm going to say. So they play it into their, their politics or that it's literally an ego thing where they don't want to back down from something that they've said. I think it's both. So from a political side, I, I think it falls more on the uh, politician, uh, more, more the political base. So, you know, I think Trump says a lot of the shit that he says because he doesn't want to lose the people that'll support him. So like the white supremacist shit, like last night, instead of just saying, you know, I, I don't support white supremacy, he keeps it sort of ambiguous because he knows uh, for better or worse, that's those are people that are going to show up and vote for Trump. So he doesn't want to alienate those people. Doesn't mean that you know you'll catch Trump down at his Palm Beach villa, you know, hosting white supremacists. But so I do think that a lot of people play into political lines. But for again, the people that are actually going to drive change, not the politicians, the people down at the bottom, um, it's an ego thing, and it goes back to that same exact principle of suffering, but also suffering brings humility. So for me, I would, I'll be the first to say I had a problem admitting that I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about, or I was wrong. And upon further review, this is now my new opinion until I went to Carnegie Mellon. Cause you're put in a room with other killers that are way smarter than you in all these other different areas and maybe even areas that you'd like to transition to. So there's tons of people that, you know, are getting out of tech, but want to go into finance. You know, me, I want to get out of finance. I want to go into tech and so on and so forth. So you've got all these really, really smart killer people. Uh, and CMU is not known to have the, the most friendliest of uh, environments either. Um, and that sort of sets the stage and humbles you that, oh, I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Let me listen to this person or it, it just, it reshapes how you think and view situations. And then again, being uh, very data um, grabby or, or needy, you're constantly looking for additional pieces to validate because one of the things that I realize is I can talk well, so I can actually influence a room, but I've got tons of smart people at CMU. So I don't want to influence them if I'm saying the wrong thing. So I actually need to listen to them and I need to do my own homework rooted through facts, data, and then we'll all, you know, come and meet. And then I'll 
you know, say my piece to the, to the world and look to influence or mobilize people for decisions. But that all came through that particular um, humbling experience. And not saying that everyone in the world has to go to Carnegie Mellon or MIT or any of these other, you know, top ranked universities, but you've got to put yourself in a position in life to be humbled, but also surround yourself preferably with other people that are smarter than you to sort of like bring up the levels. But th those are, those, those are two, I think it's ego and politics that, that ultimately sort of trips people up and, and sort of continues to trip up this country because everyone seems content to just like ride this divide, um, you know, further and further. And ultimately um, there's going to come a breaking point. Yeah, no, man, you're, you're dead on. Carnegie, what a school, man, and the impact that it's had here in this city, um, the revitalization of Pittsburgh. It's so awesome to be here at this time and to be, you know, be able to watch the city continue to grow around all the technology, all, all the things that are spawning out of Carnegie Mellon, especially. Um, it's so cool. I think that what you were just saying too, I think so martial arts probably play a lot into that as well, because when you're competing and you're fighting, you're trying to fix your flaws, right? And that you don't hide behind, you don't hide your flaws because you're going to get cracked in the mouth, right? So you have to be very ruthless in identifying them. And then you have to go and work on those. And that's the same thing with your thought patterns, right? It's like, I can, I can either be ignorant to this and continue to make the same decision based on emotion or lack of information, or if I want to be the best version of myself as a human, as a business person to make decisions for this company, for my clients, I need to constantly be identifying where I'm making poor decisions, where I'm uneducated, maybe where I'm lacking uh, a, a diverse thought, um, you know, different opinions from others and injecting that into your life and putting your thoughts to, to the test all the time. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you essentially just articulated a growth mindset, you know, and, and that's exactly what you need to be. That's personally what I believe you need to be successful. And no one's perfect. I, I have my struggles and get into my things to where I need to get walk myself back to that growth mindset. Um, but 100%, you know, you're not going from from a Muay Thai perspective or combat sports or martial arts, you're not going to grow if you don't um, go, go up against someone or test yourself against someone that, you know, is better than you. That's going to fuck you up, you know, from, from time to time. Like you don't want to be put in a, you know, where I'm fighting John Jones. Like I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to do that, but I would like to, but I need to go up against other people that are better than me, um, in different aspects or maybe just the entire game in and of themselves so that I can level up. I can get humble, but also I can see holes that I didn't see prior and I can work on those and I can get better and evolve. Same exact thing mentally that you're talking about. You need to put yourselves in rooms, preferably, um, with other people that have differing opinions from you but might actually just be way smarter than you and can, and even if they've uh, might be able to articulate or argue a point that is way better than what you thought. So you might still hold on to it and be like, no, I still think that, you know, X is, X is right. But eventually if you go in that room enough times, you'll let go. You'll be like, you know what? Yeah. That's actually, a, yeah, that's actually a really valid point. That's based on data and, mm -hmm. and mine's based upon something my dad said years ago. 
uh, yeah, no, the, these guys are probably right. So there, there needs to be that constant evolution of, of growth mindset um, that only happens whenever you're, um, you know, in a humility phase, whenever you're going against other people that might be your superior in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's very well said. So what else do you have big coming up? Anything in the works, whether it be, you know, on the business side or in Muay Thai, anything that we should be looking out for? So big, so big news is as far as the business side, there's, there's no huge news um, that's coming out. Uh, I run, I run a newsletter um, that I, I push out on a weekly basis that I think is doing a pretty good job as to opening my mind, like giving an insight into how I view things to people. Um, across all different frameworks, whether it be retail or even institutional people. I also write for Forbes as well, which I, I like to, I like to educate, but I realize, but I also try to find that sweet spot of it's an article. You don't want to be starting your morning, you know, with a, with a two page dissertation. Um, so I do that a lot. And then obviously continue to have on different guests uh, within my podcast uh, that range from, you know, combat sports people. So we just had John Fitch on, um, right on. As, as well as uh, other crypto people as well from different aspects of the community that I was kind of talking about that can maybe break it down in a more simple fashion, um, just in case there's other people uh, that are interested in. On the martial arts front, Muay Thai, um, Will and I, the other uh, Muay Thai coach, we're, we're going to be writing a book here soon. Um, kind of putting into practice a lot of things that we talked about here, uh, in principle, being able to um, look at finance from a from a very simplistic perspective um, that can sort of crop again, kind of touching into that generational uh, wealth redistribution topic, but doing it from a way um, that Will and I can can write to, but also. Um, sort of curated to, to some of the people that might be interested as well. So that we're, we're in the process of, of writing that right now. So I don't know whenever it'll be released, but that's probably like the biggest news that I would say that's going on uh, on the Muay Thai front. I wish we had fights to talk about, but right. uh, there's, there's no, there's no fight. So yeah, it's a bummer, dude. It's I'm so I'm, I'm pumped that at least the martial arts space in MMA world has kind of been really on the forefront of providing entertainment, but uh Soon, hopefully, hopefully 2021 brings a, a different temperature for everybody because I think there's a lot of healthy young individuals in the uh, martial arts space that would be appreciative to be able to go out and throw fists at each other. I completely agree. I, I'm, I'm very, very uh, anxious for 2021. I entered the year with a lot of, uh, which are just laughable <laughs> looking in hindsight, uh, expectations and anticipations. Um, so I'm ready to I'm ready to turn the page. I will continue to endure uh, 2020, but I'm very much looking forward to 2021, and hopefully that will uh, involve some of our local fighters getting a chance to go back and do what they like, and given the opportunity to grow to some of these larger stage organizations that are still going out and putting on fights without fans for our entertainment. You guys are doing a hell of a job. I know a couple of the young guys that are over there. Warren's kind of tossed some names that I've been watching, and it's awesome. I spent a little bit of time. And then I got away from it with some injuries and then work and, and whatnot. And I'm in the process of lining up some privates with Warren. So I'll be back in the gym and, and hopefully even trying to get back into a little Muay Thai and striking. So I'm sure our paths will cross again in the future, but 
I so much appreciated this conversation. It was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, dig it in it, dude. It was, uh, it was my pleasure. I can't wait to run into you uh, at the gym. Hopefully you'll take one of my classes. 100%. Appreciate it.